0: Are you?
1: Hi.
2: (laughs) Thanks for coming.
1: Well, thanks for thanks for having me.
2: Sure, it's an honor. Hope you're having a good day so far.
1: Yes, it's been really good. How about yours? Good, good, good.
2: You finally nice weather here in New York. That's. It took a while.
1: Yes, I actually live in upstate New York, which is about well, I live about six hours north of uh, the city, uh, pretty much okay. near the Canadian border.
2: Oh, that's that's good.
1: Yeah, so it's um, it, it's definitely starting to warm up here as well.
2: Oh, but yeah, is it too different from here? It's I guess there's more snow in the winter. Uh, So where
1: I live, there's not necessarily more snow, it's just colder. Okay. So, yeah, it's just significantly uh, colder here. But um, it is, I mean, I do love it up here. It's absolutely stunning.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of nature upstate. True.
1: Yes, that there is.
2: The fall is beautiful. That's my favorite season here the east coast of the fall
1: the falls and the summers in upstate are absolutely stunning but ask me like february or march and (laughs) uh, i'll give you a completely different opinion
2: (laughs) yeah i imagine a lot of traveling i guess
1: Hello,
3: everyone and very nice to meet you dr balani
1: hello nice to meet you too
3: very much yeah. yeah. looking forward to your talk today. Oh, sorry, I'm to no, you. Kat, no, I,
2: I realized I didn't introduce you to Jamie and uh, Serena and Victoria. Hi, guys. Uh, meet Dr. Ali Balani. Nice
0: to Hello meet Dr. you. Dr. Hi, nice
1: Welcome. to meet you. Please call me Ali.
0: Okay,
1: Ali. Ali. Thank
3: you, Ali. Yeah, nice to meet you all. Yeah, very much looking forward to this talk.
1: It was a fact, your paper is fascinating. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's an exploratory study, but, you know, we're actually hoping to start the large scale study on the first or in the first or second week of June. Um, as soon as the graduates we get back, we we're going to a conference um, in a couple of weeks. So right after we get back from the conference is when we're hoping to start uh, the larger study. I could
3: tell that from uh, looking at it and then. Um... But it was a very interesting angle that you're taking with it about. Well, actually, I don't want to get caught up in it when you're about to do a talk on it, but we could maybe ask questions later on. But definitely, incredibly interesting. Um, very uh, just. I can't wait to hear more.
1: That's all. I'm so looking for...
4: Question: uh, Are we are you uh, accepting any patients for this study, or have you already uh, done the pre selection or or whatnot?
1: No, so we will be recruiting for this study. Uh, We're gonna be, uh, so we'll start recruiting sometimes in June. This study does require you to come in person. Um, And since we're currently in upstate New York, that's where we'll be doing the work. Um, But we'll we'll be recruiting about 600 people for this study.
4: Yeah, that's, uh, that's really awesome to hear. Um, a friend of mine suffers from chronic fatigue syndrome, and we're always on the lookout to uh, hear what the latest and greatest is. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to this talk. Thanks.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I actually question whether we're really classifying chronic fatigue correctly. So I think hopefully some of the work that I present today might, you know, get you to think beyond just is it chronic fatigue or could it just be chronic low energy and um yeah we're not sure there's just chronic fatigue is such a complex issue that um you know we can go ahead and there's people who have different biomarkers for chronic fatigue yet they experience the same symptoms so you know we've got we're trying to parse that out yeah, it's quite the, quite the challenge. In fact, a few years ago, doctors would just laugh at patients
4: like, oh, yeah, you're just, uh, you know, you're faking it. So it's nice to see also that it's being taken much more
1: seriously. Yeah, um, we're presenting our work uh, at the CFSME conference uh, in July at SUNY Stony Brook. And um, that one, I mean, it's an entire conference dedicated to chronic fatigue, and there are some brilliant, brilliant researchers who are coming to speak at that conference.
3: This was sending my mind off in directions of thinking about um gut bacteria somehow um you know we're like sharing the body I mean, we are sharing the body with them, right, but the idea of um keeping it keeping them happy like a pet <laughs> <So it's really laughs> keep us happy,
1: yeah, so you know the gut bacteria are some, and we're still trying to figure out how you know the gut brain axis works um we are hoping while we're collecting because it's gonna you know when you're talking 600 people and two visits um i don't have enough manpower to get this data collection done for at least a year and a half to two years it's going to take us about that long um so with that in mind we're actually looking during this time we're actually hoping to see whether we can find the theoretical mechanisms of how it is that uh, the gut bacteria are connected with feelings of energy and fatigue uniquely, um, and that's something that we we hope to start that once the the full study is off the ground. But it oh, sounds
3: good. like it sounds like whatever you're going to discover, it's going to be fascinating. You know, one way or the other, I just I, I just can't see any any way you're not going to
1: just discover things that are going to be very telling. Yeah, I mean, we we initially just stumbled upon this. Uh, That's sort of what I'll talk about in my talk today is just how we stumbled upon this and how uh, this actually this entire research line came from stumbling through data.
2: Yeah, I think we can start. That was a great (laughs) pre-discussion to warm up the room. Um, So uh, yeah, we can slowly start. Welcome everyone to the Science Society. Uh, we are very honored to have our special guest speaker here today, uh, Dr. Ali Bolani. And let me give you a little bit of background information so you get to know him a little bit better. Uh, Dr. Ali Bolani, he's assistant professor at Clarkson University. Um, and he did his um, uh, bachelor at the Tulane University in international relations. And um, later on, he also did a master's in international relations focused on international politics and economics. And then he went on and did his PhD in health and human performance focused on applied physiology. And then he did the postdoc in exercise physiology um, at University of Georgia, and um, yeah, now he he is he also teaches in the Department of Physical Therapy and Biology, and he also supervises physical therapy research, and um, yeah, it's an honor to have you here, and you have such an interesting background. So uh, usually Victoria asks um, a couple of Uh, general questions before you start with your
0: talk, if that's okay with you?
1: Yeah, that's great.
0: Okay, go ahead, Victoria. All right, thank you, and Welcome again, Ali. Science Society welcomes you. We are so happy to have you and hear about your research. Um, As maybe an introductory question to hear a little bit more about you in addition to your research, I'd like to ask you, if you reflect on your life, if there's a time or an experience that you can think of that was a time that really let you know that you were interested in sciences and that you felt a special connection to science?
1: Um, I think for me, there wasn't really an aha moment. Um, I just, as you can see from my academic background, uh, it is very diverse. Um, Actually, I've got two other degrees as well that are in unrelated subjects and uh a lot of it is just i'm inherently curious and so it's just curiosity led me down this path of i just wanted to know the answer to something and then next thing i knew it i'm down a rabbit hole and now that rabbit hole is turned into understand trying to understand feelings of energy and fatigue as two separate moods and um yeah i can't really say there was a moment it was more just Ooh, I want to know the answer to this. And I think the educational background gave me the opportunity to be able to ask the questions, but also be able to figure out how to answer them.
0: Right. So it sounds like, um, yeah, the motivation of curiosity and desire to problem solve. And, And I hear that as a common thread in the guests who come to this room. And it's so interesting to learn about how and when people found their path. And so speaking of path, so thank you for that. Can you describe how you found you know, the path that led you to the research that you're doing today? And it sounds like from what you were saying earlier that that, that may be part of your discussion today.
1: It is, so um, I was in my postdoc, I was getting a postdoc in exercise psychology, um, specifically focused on fatigue. And um, one of the things that I was always thinking of is, well, when I feel tired, I walk really weird. And when I I also feel like my balance is a little bit off. So why don't I go ahead and see what's done in literature on feelings of fatigue and balance control on uh, gait. And there wasn't really anything done on feelings of fatigue. People had fatigued muscles and such. So I wrote a theory paper. Uh, that got published in 2017 on how feelings of fatigue or cognitive fatigue would end up influencing gait and balance. And I tied it to older adults because that seemed to be the most relevant of why people would care, why people who were fatigued would walk different and stand different. Um, and then after that, uh, a few researchers came behind that paper and some showed that there were significant differences in um gait and balance with changes, in feelings of fatigue, others showed that there weren't so obviously with mixed results, I wanted to kind of figure out what was going on. And I had some different data sets. And I started so uh, I did my postdoc under Pat O'Connor at the University of Georgia. And Pat looks at fatigue and energy as two distinct moods from a psychological perspective, but not necessarily from a biopsychosocial psycho perspective. So I went back and I looked at some of the biomarker data that I had, and I found that biomarkers were uniquely related to feelings of energy and feelings of fatigue. And that's kind of when i went oh these psychologists are onto something maybe feelings of energy and fatigue are two distinct moods and so i kind of went down that path and tried to figure out whether it was feelings of energy or feelings of fatigue that changed um function and found out that they both do change function but it's in a very unique way which explains a lot of those mixed results um so it just kind of started down that pathway of why was i wrong and how do, how, how do I test my assumptions?
0: I think, um, well, I'm grateful that you listen to people and I'm, I'm sure many others in here are also because that's that's leading you to your research. So thank you. Um, when So now this is the time that you can launch into your discussion and the format that we usually follow is for the guest to share their research. And then that could be followed by a question and answer. However, sometimes people like to have um, being encouraged in their discussion by questioning. So that's entirely up to you. And for people who do come up to the stage, we'll ask that you please flash your mics so we can call on you. Um, because sometimes we're, we're really blessed with a large stage and we can make sure that we get to everyone. So um, with that, Dr. Ali, the mic is yours. And um, unless you have any questions and, and please enjoy the time. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So I am very open to being asked questions in the middle of the talk. So feel free to ask away um, and I'll be glad to answer them so today what i'll do is i'll kind of talk a little bit about myself and also you know how it is that i got to this point and you know what we're we've done what we know about energy and fatigue and also where we're headed and you know what's what we hope to be the outcome so um i guess a little bit about me i am a multidisciplinary scientist um i've got graduate training and postgraduate training in applied physiology kinesiology psychology computer science and also social sciences and specifically in political economics um and so first thing is you know when i look at fatigue why in the world should i care about fatigue and energy um so i don't know how many people in here are clinicians or know about clinical a disorder such as multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's. Uh, But one of the things that we always hear about with people with MS and Parkinson's is they have what's called dopaminergic fatigue. So that's something that we are starting to find is that in healthy populations, dopamine is actually related to feelings of energy and not feelings of fatigue. So that might change the way we prescribe, the way we treat these patients, uh, because what we'll find later is that energy and fatigue are biologically distinct, and they also manifest themselves distinctly. And then the other thing is uh, patients with cancer. So approximately 70% of patients who have a diagnosis of cancer report feeling fatigued. And this is not really my work, but there is a great group out at the University of uh, San Francisco. They're actually UCSF. And um, what they did was they looked at patients with cancer who reported feeling cancer fatigue. And what they discovered was that half of them reported feeling low energy and the other half reported feeling high fatigue so that was very interesting because what we do is when we treat cancer fatigue it's pretty much the same way okay great you're going to do xyz whereas it might not be the best way to treat patients with cancer fatigue uh the other thing is chronic fatigue syndrome i know this was mentioned earlier uh but chronic fatigue syndrome we've got some patients who have mitochondrial dysfunction others don't some have uh, low dopamine levels others don't some have low serotonin levels so You know, those are all different biomarkers, which is why we have such a hard time getting a true biomarker of chronic fatigue syndrome, because they're just all over the place. And then something else that my work finds, which I am extremely curious about, and I would love to hear people's ideas as to why this might be, uh, and one of them is gender disparities. What we find is that women report feeling more fatigued and lower energy than men do. Um, We don't know why, we think, you know, we don't know if it's whether women are just more likely to admit that they feel fatigued or low energy, or whether they're, you know, women, it's because of the microaggressions that they go through. Uh, And that sort of leads me to that last part of the disparities, and that's the racial disparities. We have some data sets that show that African-Americans who live in primarily Caucasian uh, areas report feeling lower feelings of energy and higher feelings of fatigue. However, African-Americans who live in primarily African-American communities don't report the same disparities compared to their white counterparts. So we, you know, maybe the gender disparities and the racial disparities have to do with some sort of sociological construct that we're not looking at. we don't know and that's something that we would you know i'm very very interested in trying to figure out uh and the other aspect of it is you know when you look at declines in feelings of fatigue and feeling declines in feelings of energy sorry increases in feelings of fatigue they result in usually declines in performance which increases risk for injuries there's been some studies uh out of hopkins that show that increased fatigue leads to increased musculoskeletal injuries uh there's some of my work that shows that increased feelings of uh decreased zones of energy, sorry, lead to increased falls. So those are all reasons why I think we should continue to dig down on fatigue and energy and try to figure out what in the world is really going on. Um, and then the next part of you know why it is is how in the world did I get here? So we talked a little bit about how I thought about how feeling tired made me walk different and made me stand and had different balance and that's when i wrote this paper uh that was published in Preventive medicine and um we wrote this theory paper and we found out that hey the results were mixed and that's where you know it's really to me you've got to constantly you can have assumptions but you've got to constantly test your assumptions and one of the things that i assumed when i started this work was energy was the opposite of fatigue right so if you're not energetic then you're fatigued however if i would have listened to psychologists psychologists for a long time even back in the 70s were saying that energy is different from fatigue you can be energetic and fatigued simultaneously and they used more anthropological reasoning and they used you know factor analyses to be able to show that energy and fatigue were different but coming from uh, an applied physiology, applied exercise phys background, where, you know, you, you define fatigue as simply just, here you go, here are these biomarkers that change, and therefore you're fatigued. It's, you know, you've got to change your mindset, and you've got to think differently, and you've got to accept that other fields do have the answers as well, and it's not just the field that you are studying. So that's something that really got me uh, to that point of figuring out that energy and fatigue might be different. And so I take the latest definitions of energy and fatigue, which is energies an individuals' potential to perform mental and physical activity, whereas fatigue is the subjective perceptions of reduced mental or physical capacity. And I'd love to say this is my uh, definition, but it's actually O'Connor, Pat O'Connor, who's at the University of Georgia. Uh, those are his definitions and uh, that's sort of the definitions that we're currently working off of because our current models support that energy is really a subjective mood state. It's a motivation to perform tasks. And then the other thing that my work is finding is that energy, when you're looking at objective measures, what we find is that whenever there's a decline in feelings of energy, there's an increase in error rates. So for example, if we give people cognitive tasks to perform, when there's a decline in feelings of energy, they end up not changing how quickly they respond. Instead, they end up making more errors. However, when they report feeling increases in feelings of fatigue, there's no change in error rate, and instead their reaction time decreases. So now it's just taking them longer to respond, but they're not making errors. And these might seem semantics at first, but if you think about it, um, you know those could have real world implications. So when you look at how people move based on how they're changing the feelings of energy and fatigue, what we end up seeing is when people are fatigued, they end up guarding their, themselves. So they end up walking slower. They end up saying, hey, I'm tired. Maybe I should take a break. Maybe I should rest. Uh, Whereas energy, they just make more errors and are less likely to slow down. You actually see them consistently trying to correct what's going on and trying to basically change how they walk. So what do we know so far about energy and fatigue being different? So first thing I'm going to do is talk about the biological correlates of energy and fatigue. So some of the things that we find is that uh, feelings of energy. Whenever you see a change in dopamine levels, you see a change in feelings of energy. You also see changes in nexin A1 with changes in feelings of energy. Peripheral mitochondrial function, really, it's SMO2. Whenever SMO2 changes, uh, you end up seeing changes in feelings of energy. Uh, normalized resting metabolic rate. So, this is something that my work is showing that it's associated with energy. However, there is a researcher out there that did before i published this in 2018 she published something in 2017 and tied normalized resting metabolic rate to feelings of fatigue however what she did was she did not account for feelings of energy so when we went back and we reanalyzed her data accounting for feelings of energy what we found was that normalized resting metabolic rate was actually associated with energy and not with fatigue but when she completely ignored the construct of energy she was able to uh basically hypothesize that it was associated with energy i'm sorry with fatigue so you know with that being said yes there is a there are two contradictory studies but one of the things is that those studies in particular didn't account for energy and when we went back and reanalyzed their data what we found was that energy was the driving force of the normalized change in normalized metabolic arrest metabolic rate um, and then the other thing that we find, which is what got me on this, uh, clubhouse talk in the first place is metabolic gut microbiomes. So what we find is gut microbiomes that are associated with metabolism were the ones that were associated with feelings of energy. And if you think about what I've talked about in the, you know, previously with peripheral mitochondrial function, SMO2 levels, right? Normalized metabolic rates, resting metabolic rates, those are all metabolic issues so it'll it's interesting that we even find that the gut microbiomes that are associated with metabolism of various um compounds are the ones that are associated with feelings of energy and then we we go over to feelings of fatigue and what we find is that um changes in serotonin levels are associated feelings of fatigue changes in histamine levels and then the other thing that we also find, this is there are multiple studies on this, is that whenever there's a change in TNF alpha, so whenever there's increased TNF alpha, we find an increase in feelings of fatigue. And interestingly, what we also find is that uh, inflammatory gut microbiomes, so gut microbiomes that are associated with inflammation are associated with feelings of fatigue. So perhaps we are onto something here. Um, And before I go on, one of the things that I wanted to clarify is what exactly is trait and state? So trait is someone's normal predisposition. So for example, if I am normally an energetic person, then I would be high trait energy. But if I'm normally a low energy person, I would be low trait energy. State, on the other hand, is how I'm feeling at the moment. So even though I'm normally energetic, I went and worked out for two hours and now I'm feeling low energy. So in that instance, in a very short period of time, I am low energy. So that would be state energy. So when we start looking at trait and state, what we know is that trait is stable and state is not. State can change. So when we're looking at these biological correlates, when you start thinking about trait level energy and fatigue, you've got to look at things that have temporal stability, such as gut microbiome, you know, unless obviously you are taking antibiotics or something, but usually throughout your adult lifespan, your gut microbiome stays pretty stable. And we've gotten multiple studies where we've measured people one year out. And what we found is that despite interventions of sleep, Um exercise, their trait level energy and fatigue did not change. So therefore, there is temporal stability, which is how we looked at the gut microbiome and trait level energy and fatigue. And then the other thing is the researchers at UCSF um, they looked at trait level energy and fatigue. And what they found was that there were unique epigenome associated with feelings of energy and fatigue that had to do with neurotransmitters of dopamine for energy and neurotransmitters of serotonin. fatigue so clearly there's something there and then the other thing is also how fatigue and energy manifest themselves uniquely and how we move so one of the things we're not the only people there's actually another researcher that looked at um, a really she looked at a large data set and um, what she found was that trait level physical energy was associated with better gait associated functional outcomes and also lower mortality uh, in older adults. And what we find is the same thing, where what we find is physical increases, high trait physical energy was associated with better gait associated functional assessments. Uh, We did ours in a a single group uh, over the course of a year. And that's where we saw that temporal stability of trait energy was there over the course of the year, and secondly, their gait-associated functional outcomes were also stable because of that. Uh, The other thing that we also find is declines in mental energy lead to declines in balance. Uh, Declines in feelings of energy lead to increased variance between limb gait characteristics. So what we find is that people, when they're walking, when the lower the, more, the less energetic they feel, the more errors they make, that actually puts them at an increased risk for falls. Um, and then the other thing is increases in fatigue lead to decreased gait initiation speed. So what we find is that individuals are, now when they start gait, they are taking a tad bit longer. There's also less variation in their gait which means that they're now slowing down. They're being a little more careful when they're walking and uh, they're actually, it's leading to them trying to protect themselves from falling, which is very interesting if you think about it, right? Where in one instance, when you're feeling fatigued, you're more protective, but when you're feeling low energy, you're not. And instead you just make errors. So that's something that um, I find to be pretty interesting. And if you look at O'Connor's work, where you know he's look, he's talked about the anthropological reasons for why we have these di- distinct moods, why energy and fatigue are distinct. It's sort of a similar um, anthropological reason where he said fatigue was more of a protective mechanism for us. So you know we looked we when we felt fatigued, It was more of a way for us to stop doing. Things, whereas we felt low energy, it was our way to be less motivated to do it, which is why we had more errors and such. So it was very interesting how you know, all this is tying into the work that even these um, psychologists who look at it from an anthropological perspective are doing. So we're finding very, very interesting results here.
4: That reminds me of a, an, a, a report from, I think it was Shire Pharmaceuticals on the error rate uh, when taking Adderall, for example, so after a certain point, the error rate increased regardless of the dosage of the drug. And that was uh, rather interesting because they obviously use this stuff uh, in extreme situations when you really have to be awake. So it'd be interesting to see how these definitions of fatigue and energy translate to that study.
1: So that's, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I'm actually, um, one of the things that we did was, you know, we find that that similar uh, effect with caffeine. So caffeine is a stimulant, and what we find, which is what Adderall is as well, right? And what we find is, and this is in my work, this is Bert Jacobson's work. Bert Bert finds that when uh, caffeine levels get above a certain level, you actually end up making more errors. So there's there's some sort of, I guess, equilibrium, right, which is why you which is where caffeine is helpful. But beyond that, you actually see a decline in motor task performance. You end up seeing increased error rates. Um, So that's very interesting where, you know, you, you cited that study with the with Adderall because we see, you know, this is something that's been seen in caffeine as well. And which, you know, this is interesting because it brings me up to another point is where we've actually looked at trait level. So how you normally feel, trait level feelings of energy and fatigue. And what we find is that individuals who are high trait, mental and physical fatigue, that means you normally feel very mentally and physically fatigued, usually get the highest mood benefits of caffeine. However, individuals who are high trait physical energy, which means they normally feel physically energetic, get the best motor task performance um, of consuming caffeine. So perhaps it's even the trait, the trait level energy and fatigue is also impacting this, the response to caffeine. And I'd be curious to see if they looked at hyper versus hypo responders in that Adderall study that you just talked about uh, to see whether there might be some differences. And I think that this is where the beauty of data, right? If you really dig down, look at the data, what you find is that there's, it can tell you a lot more stories than just looking at the aggregate means.
4: I'll try to find the study and send in the back too.
1: Oh, that would be great if you could. So that kind of brings me to another point, which is, you know, what we find something that I think a lot of researchers show is that, uh, you know, exercise increases feelings of energy. And then eventually over a certain period of time, you start seeing a decrease in feelings of fatigue uh what we found was we actually did a study um we followed these 22 individuals for a year as i was telling you with the trait level and functional assessment but we act we put them through an exercise protocol twice a week and what was interesting is that when we looked at acute changes in feelings of energy and fatigue we find that there was an increase in feelings of energy but there was no change in feelings of fatigue so one of my uh, undergrad students who was a math major, I actually made her plot out everyone's changes. And what she found was that there were some people who were consistently reporting feeling more fatigued when we were, um, you know, when we looked at pre post responses. And so when we went back and took those people out, what we found was actually exercise decreased fatigue. So apparently there's a group of people and in our particular case, we were doing a, um, an aquatic therapy, an aquatic physical therapy intervention Individual, And this was a group exercise. And what we found was that individuals who have low social functioning, which was approximately 45% of our population reported feeling increased feelings of physical and mental fatigue after exercise. So perhaps you know not everyone's going to respond the same way to exercise as well uh and then the other thing that we see which is also very interesting and this isn't just my work laura ellingson's doing some great work with this as well is what they find is that individuals who sit for greater than eight hours don't get the physical activity benefits on feelings of mental energy and fatigue but they do get the physical activity benefits on physical energy and fatigue um, and this is kind of right along the lines of this whole inter-individual differences so we have another study that hasn't been published yet uh but what we find is that we make these individuals do mental tasks over the course of um one and a half hours. So what we did was we wanted to mimic a classroom setting. And so we made individuals do mental tasks for an hour and a half, 28 minutes of mental tasks with the two minute break. And then what we also did was we so we had three different interventions. One was a sitting desk. The other one was a standing desk. And the last one was sitting for 28 minutes. And then in the two minutes when we didn't give them the cognitive tasks, we had them walk for two minutes. And this is where results were super interesting. We looked at it as a group. What we found is that as a group, when individuals were sitting, they reported an increase in feelings of anxiety. They reported a decrease in feelings of fatigue. They reported, uh, sorry, increase in feelings of fatigue. They reported decreases in feelings of energy, just sort of what you would expect from sitting. Whereas if these individuals were standing there was no significant difference. Now, when we split them up based on whether they reported feeling normally high fatigue or low fatigue or high energy or low energy, that's when the results get super interesting. Because what we find is that individuals who normally report feeling low physical energy, when they were sitting, they saw a significant spike in feelings of anxiety and that was sort of interesting because the people who were high trait physical energy reported no change in feelings of anxiety so what that suggests is that people who normally don't feel energetic if they're going to do mental tasks sitting will see a large enough spike in which is also what was dragging the entire group up and then the other some of the other interesting findings were that individuals who normally feel physically fatigued in a standing condition and in walking, they actually felt more fatigued than when they were sitting. So if you normally feel physically fatigued, maybe sitting is a better intervention for you to not feel that physically fatigued. So those were very interesting findings for us. Uh, and some of the other interesting findings, which is, which kind of ties back into the gut microbiota work is uh, recently as of, I wanna say it was about a week and a half ago, we published a study where we looked at an adaptogenic rich caffeinated, uh, uh, caffeinated beverage, and we compared it to a synthetic caffeinate, caffeinated beverage. So we looked at a brewed caffeine versus a caffeine that was a uh, caffeinated product that was uh, developed in, la- in the lab. And what we found was that there were unique differences in how people, certain people responded to uh, this adaptogenic rich caffeine and, one of the our thoughts are we don't know if the unique impact is based on the gut microbiota or if it's based on the unique epigenetic biomarkers because what we find is that individuals who normally felt fatigued when they had the adaptogenic rich beverage they actually felt significantly better they felt less fatigued they felt higher energy uh, same thing. So can
4: you explain what what that drink is, or or that uh, like what what does that mean? I, I haven't heard that term before.
1: I'm sorry. What, what does Adaptogenic... what mean? Adaptogenic. So adaptogens are plant-based uh, phytochemicals. I am I wouldn't say I'm an expert on the expert on them is Eric Gumprit, who is uh, based at out of Arizona. And so Eric and I did this work and they haven't an, they work on adaptogenic adaptogens basically are plant-based phytochemicals that they use there are uh, I want to say don't quote me on the exact numbers there are 12 of them or 16 somewhere in that range and what they did was they mixed those adaptogenic adaptogens with caffeine and they wanted to see if the impact on moods and cognitive task performance and fine motor task performance was different for this adaptogenic rich beverage versus a synthetic caffeine beverage. Um, Thank you,
4: thank you very much. I'm just taking notes here, so I appreciate the clarification, thank you.
1: Yeah, not a problem. Um, So, you know, one of the things that, what, what we've tried to do is we've tried to see if we can identify feelings of energy and fatigue and changes in feelings of energy and fatigue. And so what we're using right now for that is a combination of computer vision as well as sensors. So I've got a background in uh, computer science as well. And so I use some of my computer science background to use machine learning. Uh, Right now, we're, we're doing a study where we're trying to see whether machine learning or deep learning would be the best way to identify feelings of energy and fatigue. And what we did was we've used single task walking gait. And um, I know uh, Katarina has my presentation, but it's got links to where you can see what gait is what gait differences are. So you can click on the on it. And we've got models that we've created in unity. So you can see what someone who's anxious walks like versus someone who's not someone who sleeps poorly the night before versus someone who doesn't. And so we've used human movement to try to identify feelings of energy and fatigue, and also, it's uh, associated factors. Um, And so eventually, our goal is to create artificial intelligence that can identify how someone's feeling in the moment and then prescribe uh, individualized interventions for these people. And so with that in mind, we are looking at individualized interventions. And some of the issues that we're having is, you know, looking at how people have previously identified feelings of energy and fatigue. And one of the things that we see is that people in the past have used ratings of perceived exertion or RPE to measure fatigue. Um, We actually stopped data collection on a study because what we did was we we measured individuals' feelings of energy and fatigue. We put them through a two-hour-long physically grueling exercise protocol, and then we finished that up by making them perform a Bruce Protocol VO2 max test, where we had them take their RPEs to a minimum of 17, which is what literature uses, to identify as feelings of fatigue. However, this is where the results get super interesting. Half of our subjects reported feeling more energetic instead of less energetic. Half of our subjects reported feeling less fatigued instead of more fatigued. So we figured we'd stop collecting data at 12 because if things were still going to continue at this rate, there was absolutely no point in us collecting data to 30, you know, to an end of 30, so that we can meet our initial power calculations. And so we are hoping to report that because it seems as if we can't go back to some of that literature that uses um, RPE to define fatigue. Uh, So the other thing that we're also looking at is individualized uh, interventions on our end. And some of it is we're looking at, you know, I think something that, literature does normally is you know look at exercise with aerobic versus strength but how about your relationship to exercise because there's so much more to exercise than just like getting on an elliptical and what you prefer and your personal relationship to exercise so uh we're actually drawing on An exercise philosophers work. So we're looking at your philosophical definition of exercise and your philosophical relationship with exercise. And so we classify these ontological types of exercise and we try to see how people respond. And we are all we've done the data analysis. We're actually in the process of writing this up. And what we find is that women, when they exercise with one other person, they feel more energetic than when they exercise by themselves or exercise in a group or exercise out in nature. Men on the other hand, they feel significantly more energetic when they exercise with multiple people rather than by themselves or, um, with one other person or in nature. Now we are hoping after this to start looking for inter individual differences, but for right now, we have over 2,800 uh, different data points that we've looked at. And then the other interesting thing that we find in this is that when women exercise with other people, whether it's with one other person or with multiple people, the report feeling less depressed. Now, granted, this data was collected during the summer of uh, the first summer of COVID, so perhaps you know, during that time, they weren't social distancing, they were getting social interactions, but we found those really interesting because we didn't find the same results with um, men. So we I'm really curious to see if people have um, ideas as to why this might be the case. Um, and then something else that we, we're currently doing. So one of the things that's been done in literature, and this is something that, um, You know, they've looked at individual muscles and how they fatigue when people fatigue. However, what I am truly interested in is can we identify how the network of muscles work together, right? So how's the intermuscular coordination changing when people feel more fatigued, but then also how's it changing when people feel less fatigued? So one of the problems with looking at individual muscle EMGs and looking at how those muscle Uh, EMG signals change is that researchers have only been able to look at how they change when people become fatigued. No one's been able to identify, well, what happens when you start to feel better? How do those signals change? Um, And so what we're trying to do right now is we're actually trying to identify what happens when they, you know, how do those interactions change? And instead of looking at just one muscle, we're looking at interactions of eight different muscles, and then what we want to do is see how do those interactions change once they start to feel better. So in combination to EMG, we're also using IMU signals. We're using a combination of, uh, well, right now we're trying to figure out whether deep learning or machine learning will be the way to go. We are um, currently working with the data. We've found some uh, places where data is dropped. One of the problems with sensors is the you know data gets dropped. Um, But that's sort of where we are with that. And the other thing that we're doing, which I think is also very important, is as we're starting to use VR, right, uh, something that, you know, you look at Oculus and such, and, you know, I'm not trying to call out a company here, but we're starting to do things like VR exercise. But has anyone thought about the cognitive loads that VR has on uh, people, right? Like, how does it impact feelings of mental energy, feelings of mental fatigue? So, can, I ask,
5: I, can I ask a question?
1: Yeah, definitely. Have, have you integrated any studies of
5: uh, fMRI or PET scans uh, looking at uh, uh, different uh, anatomical uh, areas like the cerebellum, the reticular activating system, uh, some of the basal ganglia in terms of these issues of... Uh, coordination, uh, cognitive load, um, state of of arousal or fatigue, um, because that might provide an
1: orthogonal view of a lot of these questions you're asking. We have not, I don't have access to that where I am, unfortunately, Uh, but if you know of a researcher who might be interested in asking those questions, who does have access to it, I would love to collaborate with them.
5: Yeah, I'd I'd look into the neuroscience uh, team at UC Davis in particular. It might be very, you might find some uh, um, hotspots there.
1: Definitely. Thank you. I'll I'll definitely look take a look at them and uh, reach out to them. Um, so yeah, I mean I think that those would be very very interesting questions for us to ask. Um, right now, some of the other things that we're doing is. Um, the group out at University of Connecticut, the Corey Stringer Institute, they have significant, they have 180 biomarkers and feel changes in feelings of energy and fatigue. And so right now uh, I'm working with that group to try to see what other biomarkers change uniquely with feelings of energy and fatigue. So I just feel like there's so much more for us to learn with this. A um, man. Oh, um, mm-hmm. Go ahead.
0: I just I'm curious if um,
2: you've looked into pernicious anemia and if that has anything to do with, uh, you know, well, intrinsic factor, obviously, but um, uh, and levels of fatigue. So lack of.
1: We have personally not looked at it um, right now. We are primarily working with Healthy adults, because that is the population that I have access to. Um, we're we're in a very small town, so even doing older adult work, you know, limits the. We have a very limited number of people here who we can uh, tap into. But as I'm starting to work with uh, researchers at other universities, we are hoping to get more into patient populations.
0: All right, thank you.
1: You're welcome um so right now i'm really trying to figure out what are these you know how do these people respond what are the inter and intra individual differences uh we hope to create some great artificial intelligence uh that can help us identify when people are feeling more fatigued and then also prescribe um intervention so right now we have a couple of studies that are ongoing the first study is uh looking at the Gut microbiome stuff that I was telling you about the larger study. We will hope to start that in June, uh, where we're looking at and you know we're looking at collecting data on 600 people. And then the other thing that we're doing with that study is we're actually piloting uh, some novel sensors that we have created. Uh, we've created pressure and IMU sensors that can that are about the thickness of a band aid. And we're we've put them in insoles as well as sewn them in a, basically in a t-shirt. Um, it's one of those um, Walmart t-shirts at the moment. And we've sewn them in them, and we are hoping to use those along with. Our current IMU sensors, as well as uh, video data, because we want to use some computer vision work as well to see if we can identify feelings of energy and fatigue in a, on a larger scale. Because our last models, and we were at eighty eight point six percent accuracy with and and those of you who are familiar with the uh, you know with the terms with, when you're talking about with changes in our classifier models, I mean we had accuracy rates of. Uh, 85, 88% with um, AUC rocks above 0.9. And then in, in our aggressor models, we had R squares of 88.6 with our MAEs being less than 0.006. So we're talking, we've got very, we can, we see that we've got very good models and then we have seen bigger numbers. So what we're hoping to do is with this when we're collecting data for the gut microbiome study we can also collect human movement data and see if we can do a better job with the larger sample size but also see whether our unique uh sensors which to me are a lot better because our current the current sensor models that we use use seven sensors but I don't know about you I don't want to walk around with seven sensors attached to me every day so we're trying to create sensors that can be embedded into clothing that could identify changes in feelings of energy and fatigue. And, you know, if you think about it from a perspective of older adults, uh, hey, an older adult, we might be able to alert them when they're at a higher risk for trips and falls and say, maybe slow down, or maybe members of the military, hey, you're at a higher rate for making errors or you're at a higher rate for, for musculoskeletal. Time to injury
4: hydrate, injury. Private. Time to hydrate.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I was just yelling, but uh,
4: all of a sudden, the uh, warfighter in the field receives an audio message that says time to hydrate private. Uh, That that would be like an automated system that would actually be very beneficial. I I think um, uh, my question is, what is the nature or mechanism of these sensors? Because that sounds uh, very fascinating. Like I myself work on sensor technology, so. Oh, yeah. And and
5: along along the same lines, uh, you know, both Under Armour and the military um, are doing a lot of this kind of work if you haven't plugged into those communities.
1: Yeah. So that's really where my work is currently headed, uh, is being plugged into those uh, not specifically Under Armour, but uh, military. So I've got a couple of grants that have um, it's been, you know. Those of you who are academics know how the DOD funding works. You know, you score really well, but it could be put in a basket. Uh, I've been put in a basket for the last two grants, uh, and the pr- primary reason has just been uh, score certain scores. I won't get into details on a public forum, but the scientific scores have been really, really high, um, and so I'm hoping... The collaboration with the Corey Stringer Institute, as well as um, a colleague at University of Indiana, changes those scores, and we're able to, you know, secure the funding needed to be able to do this work in the military.
4: Yeah, this really. Well, one... I heard that oftentimes these institutions that grant these kinds of uh, funds uh, have some policies, like we we reject you the first four times on principle just a low-level filter. So I heard things like that that kind of made me a little bit pessimistic, but uh, I'm still hopeful. Well, so well, uh, hopefully you get it on your next shot. Well, one comment, I hope so too. One
6: comment to offer in terms of the IMU, the wearable IMUs, and, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly if you're going after a military uh, application, um, the sen- sensor quality on the IMU is problematic. And those IMUs, you really get what you pay for. And particularly if you're Going for AI classifications of you know subtle changes in motion that might actually be problematic. Um, uh, just to, you know just just a comment. I've seen I've seen that case. I've you know been forced to even on just pet projects be forced to upgrade to higher quality IMUs to get um, accuracy data. So just uh, wanted to mention that uh, because in terms of military applications they they'd be aware of that. So. Um, just a comment there.
1: Thanks. I mean, we the sensors that we are using are 3D printed. And the, uh, the electrical engineer who I work with, he is 3D printing them. But One of the things that we're doing is working with our material scientists to make them both a, an IMU and a pressure sensor. Because we're hoping between the two, we've got enough uh, data sensitivity to be able to classify. And to be able to, um, you know, identify these moods, but that's you know that's one of the reasons why our project is actually going to be starting in the, se- in the around the second week of June is that we're currently trying to use our you know our students as well as ourselves as guinea pigs to see what the signal quality is um, and whether we can use that data to accurate, or at least relatively accurately classify and are, you know, just the people in our lab. That's going to be good
6: data to include in the application. Definitely.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, we're hope we're hopeful it's good, but right. I mean, I just literally earlier today, I was the Guinea pig, so I can tell you we're, we're working on that to hope we're hoping it's good quality data. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the things that we're doing and the other thing that we're also doing is, um, you know, one of the things that, um, uh, comes up and is an issue is that, you know, a lot of these sensors, especially when you're talking about walking and gait and such, uh, they're for able-bodied individuals who can ambulate without any sort of neurological issues or anything like that. So we're talking healthy adults. But what about individuals who can't ambulate, who are para-athletes or who are, even if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, people are competing in esports. So one of the other things that we're also doing right now, we're partnering with a uh, company out in Silicon Valley, and we're trying to determine whether eye movement, but we're also in addition to that, we're looking at blink rate. Uh, as well as length of time of blinking to see if we can identify changes in feelings of energy and fatigue with that data. Um, we just started collecting data on that last week. And so we're still a ways away, but this is something that we're going to give it a shot and see if we're any good at it. Uh, so that's sort of what we're doing at the moment Um and hopefully after this, we can, um, you know, start to create some sort of hierarchical models to be able to um, optimize exercise or sleep or whatever it is. But I think we're we're ways away from that. Uh, we still have, and, you know, when it comes to sensors, right, we've looked at IMU and pressure sensors, but maybe there are better ways. Maybe there are, you know, maybe... It requires us to use, um, you know, some sort of near-infrared sensors along with it. So we really need to have a better understanding of these biomarkers that are unique. Um, And also, how are these biomarkers different for various populations? Um, Are there overlapping biomarkers? Um, One of the other things that um, a colleague of mine, well, my postdoc mentor, Pat, O'Connor's finding is that muscle mass plays a role in changes in intensity of feelings of energy and fatigue. Uh, So that kind of brings up the point of like, does muscle fiber type play a role? Um, And then are there unique patterns of contraction between these muscle fiber types? Uh, What are these? And how are these inter-individual differences? Um, And then something else that, you know, this is not my work, um, but there are, there's some researchers that have looked at loneliness. And what they find is that individuals who are lonely don't get the exercise benefits of feeling, fit, you know, uh, when they feel fatigued, they don't get those exercise benefits. So I'm wondering, is there some sort of psychosocial component that I'm not thinking about? Um, and then, you know, the microaggression stuff I talked about earlier, are there maybe some social interventions that we can also look at? Um, and then the other thing is using some of my brief Behavioral economics background is, you know, how do things like endowment effect change our reporting of these? You know, because a lot of fatigue and uh, energy measures are self reported. How do these, you know, choice architecture, deadline effect, how do these impact our self reporting? Um, And obviously, with technology, we've got these technological. um, challenges as you know i don't know who it is that just spoke about the imu sensors you've got the imu sensors energy and fatigue are on a spectrum which makes it very difficult to create a ground truth uh we should also probably find better signals and then the other thing so we did a study just simply trying to capture eye movement data and at least with our technology and we we were simply using webcams um we were unable to capture data in darker skin populations and so that's clearly uh something that we need to work on and also the the stuff that's been the most accurate has also been very data intensive so our most accurate models i mean we've used rgb cameras and rgb cameras anyone who's worked with them knows that they're very very data intensive so we need to find better ways to do it. Um, But yeah, that's, that's actually the end of my chat. Um, Could I, could I just uh,
5: comment on your last point? Um, Yeah. And, you know, 23andMe has a huge database um, of uh, both people and GWAS findings. And um, they routinely report out now uh, some of the genetic markers um, of uh, muscle function. And it might be really interesting to do, uh, you know, another orthogonal lens overlay of that information on on the other uh, inputs you have to the model.
4: That would be, yep, that would be very, very interesting. I immediately think of uh, Beat Saber and John Carmack every uh, Monday or whatever. He hosts like a battle where he invites people to come and battle him in a one-on-one session of uh, Beat Saber. I think self-reporting in that situation, correlating that data with something like 23andMe, I know I would be willing to share that data for the sake of science. And I think 23andMe has also shown that there's a lot of people who are like-minded. You know, the joke is Bill Gates makes a vaccine. Everyone thinks he's trying to put nanotech into their body. Uh, Elon Musk comes along and says, "I literally want to put a microchip inside your head," and people say, "Shut up and take my money." So there's this kind of uh, bifurcation of the population. But uh, definitely, partnerships with these uh, organizations or other things like that might be possible too, especially since you're
1: referring to gaming platforms. Uh, I've tried to, um, you know, make that partnership with one of the larger companies, and their response, at least to me, was we are, we have a bad reputation of collecting data and we don't know if we want to collect, uh, mood data on people. So they're I'm already doing
4: it. <laughs> you know, yeah. This, like the, 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 one of the neuroscientists here, uh, he actually uh, had a project funded by Facebook and it was specifically VR and it pertained to a bunch of these, uh, kinds of, uh, various aspects of multi-sensory integration and, uh, uh kind of uh calibration of senses and i i definitely uh if you if you'd like uh, perhaps their contact would be willing to discuss it with you um i think that's always a possibility they were surprisingly very open and to this day i think meta has this huge push to the uh metaverse and so perhaps it's just a matter of uh, putting a few keywords like metaverse <laughs> into the grant or pro- proposal
1: yeah that that would be great if i could and if you've got the context that would be great i think that's sort of been my biggest challenge right now
7: dr Bulani. in terms of the computer vision component of these experiments
1: have you considered using thermal cameras i have not i'd actually like i'm trying to move and move away from the higher spec cameras the upcoming study we're actually going to use um our ipad pro cameras um, the, we're going to use 720p, um, cameras because we are trying to use low tech because I want this to be accessible to as many people as possible.
7: I understand. The only reason I, I brought that up was because it can, um, give you some insight into their baseline rates in terms of blood flow and other things, and it might be able to, Provide some more insight into these resting states and the differentials um, that you're trying to to suss out. Hmm. I
1: I hadn't thought about it that way, but um, I'll definitely take a look at those thermal cameras and see if they're they're in our lab budget or not.
4: Yeah, that's the biggest thing that I found. Any sort of continuous monitoring requires so much data, and if you compress you'll lose the nuance, and so either you have to have some very quick and rapid review every day where you can look at the data, uh, kind of parse the noise, and then compress it, and then throw it away, but ideally, you would want to keep track of it, and so it just becomes this, you know, the IoT data crisis, where do you put all this data, it just becomes ridiculous.
5: <laughs>
8: have, yep. have you
5: have you spoken at all to Adam Gasly, the founder of Akili, or have you thought about Are you familiar with Akili? I am not. Okay, A-K-I-L-I. I I would
1: just take a look at it and see if you find anything interesting there. I think you might. Okay, thank you. I'll definitely, I'm actually trying to put it down in my notes right now.
5: Yeah, Um, it might be interesting in terms of uh, both cognitive load and fatigue. But it's it's a gaming tool for
1: cognitive uh, conditioning. No, I am not familiar, but thank you. I'll definitely look that up.
9: Hi doctor, Um, I wanted to jump in. Um, I have two questions, well, three questions. Um, One is about um, muscle memory in fatigue. Um, How has that been studied, especially like when gait imbalances occur? Um, My second question is, have you used um, like Oculus VR is also being used in physical therapy Um, There's, like, sensors um, in the insoles and there's, like, a pad and that can um, regulate and monitor, like, movements. Have you guys looked at that? And then um, lastly, if there is muscle memory in fatigue, can that be overrun? Like, can you, like, when you, like, you know, like, when you get a cramp, it's very painful like can there be something like that where as soon as you feel any type of like tension you're like okay i'm fatigued i need to do this or like is there anything like signals like that that you guys have come across um yeah i hope that made sense thank you
1: thanks so uh in terms of muscle memory i think you know you're looking at motor coordination patterns right um so right now there is a researcher at apl at hopkins who is looking at specifically emg of singular muscles with fatigue and what he's finding is that the contraction rate drops dramatically especially of the low frequency signals those just change dramatically when people become fatigued uh, that's sort of where he is right now with it. What we're doing is we're taking a slightly different approach than he is. And we're instead, uh, and this is something where we are meeting Monday, actually to go ahead and work on this, um, uh, is we're looking at the interactions of the muscles and how those motor coordination patterns change as people become more fatigued. And then also they become less fatigued. Uh, And when we were looking at that, as far as I am aware, we are the only people right now that are looking at those motor coordination patterns. Um, If you're familiar with the group uh, out, Ivanov's group out at BU, we're working with them. Uh, They use... uh, they. Have a, I guess, to use physics and math, math techniques and physiology. And so, uh, as far as I'm aware, we are like, we would be that paper if we were able to do it well, we would be the first ones to do that. But we're still looking at the data uh, on that. And I can't tell you one way or the other what we'll find. Um, and then, as for your second question in terms of using VR with physical therapy, we actually. Interestingly, the reason why I started looking at the Oculus is because my colleague who does chronic pain work, uh, she was using the Oculus uh, for an intervention. And so a lot of her uh, subjects, she was initially trying it out on healthy young populations. A lot of her subjects, when they came out, reported feeling tired. And so she told me, oh, hey, this is what's going on with my subjects. Should we measure feelings of energy and fatigue in them, pre and post? And so we actually started a uh, study, a tangential study, where we are using both the Oculus, but also using a, an, excuse me, an intervention with uh, doing it on a regular computer monitor, and we've got the exact same intervention for both, and we want to see whether Oculus increases cognitive load more than. The regular two dimensional uh, model does. And then, with that, when you talk about the pressure sensors and such, so pressure sensors are used right now. So, right now, what's, you know, with sensor technology, especially when it comes to gate measurements, pressure sensors, it's either pressure or IMU. There are quite a few people who are combining pressure and IMU sensors more in the biomedical engineering world and the PT world. And uh, we are actually combining the two as well. And, and and what we're looking to do, though, is we're looking to see whether we can use those to identify feelings of change in feelings of energy and fatigue. However, something that we do find is that those lower extremity kinematics might not be enough. And we should actually look at movement in lumbar and sternum as well, So, which is why we're also creating IMU sensors that we're going to be embedding into lumbar region as well as in the sternum. Um, Because I think we'll need a combination of all four of those in order for us to have pretty accurate models or to have accurate models.
9: Okay. Yeah. um, Yeah. The Oculus fatigue is, um, yeah, it is. It happens, you know, just when you're using it just for fun as well. I don't know, it's like too much, too much sensory overload or it's, I don't know. But yeah, it does happen. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome.
7: Did you have any participants drop due to
1: being unable to cope with the the with using the Oculus devices? So that one, we are currently at an N of nine and we haven't had anyone drop yet. But yet is the key word. I have friends who do use VR uh, in their research, and they have said that they've had pretty high dropout rates from people feeling, um, you know, as if they're about to puke and such. So I'm I'm expecting it's going to happen at some point.
7: Because the my understanding is that it tends to some people just don't react well within very quick amount of exposure and then i've also heard this is not studies this is just anecdotal evidence um that basically 15 minutes is kind of a delineation
1: point so maybe as a, your experiments are running at what duration so this one in particular is running at tw- a 25 minute bouts so they get 25 minute bouts and then they get five minutes of rest and they're doing it for an hour and a half interesting okay and from what i can tell you right now just based on the n of nine i've just been keeping an eye out on the data um boy that is a huge change in feelings of mental energy and mental fatigue you actually see both of them are just um by the time they're done with that hour and a half they are drained because that's, just, getting... the,
7: that's just the self-reporting there's no like um objective markers for that, right?
1: There are. So what we're doing is, um, so O'Connor back in, I wanna say 2005, uh, what he found was that there were selective attention tasks that looked at accuracy versus reaction time, uh, specifically the Bakken test. And so what we've done is we've created a game that uses the Bakken. Uh, Not sorry, not the Bakken, the RVIP, the rapid visual input processing task. And so it's basically just spaceships that are similar uh, to what the RVIP task would be and what they, you know, what O'Connor, Sholey, Kennedy use. And we've created that on the Oculus as well as on a 2D laptop. And um, that's what we're making them do. So they're actually we're trying to mentally fatigue them on top of them using this VR. And right now, I mean, just what we're seeing, the result, the results are, I mean, the, the effect size is really large. I don't know how much further we'll have to go. Uh, we've got an IRB for 30, but based on the effect sizes that I'm seeing, we might be able to stop at 15 and still meet our power.
7: Fascinating. Looking forward to that for sure. All right, who else has questions? Let's see, mic flashes. I know I have some, but I would like to see if anybody else does.
3: Can I uh, ask, please? Um, So this is really interesting, what you're discovering. Are you thinking then that um, more data, at the very least in the short term, could allow for maybe more effective workout regimes and general physical fitness and, and better ways to like analyze how to um find the optimum um sort of set up and and, and health system for a person then like a, you know like a workout regime you know but this would be another thing to test and and take into account then
1: for to maximize health and even mental disposition that's what i th- Think, right? So I think at the end of the day the goal is to have an optimal routine for everyone. So um, as I said with um, you know what we're we're looking at right now people's relationships with exercise and whether that plays a role. Um, I have a colleague, Jacob Meyer at Iowa State and he's looking at various intensities and so he's actually working with me the master's student who's actually collecting data for the gut microbiome study that's not his thesis but his thesis is looking at various intensities of warm-ups and how those impact performance on various tasks and so we're kind of hoping from that we're able to determine how there are you know how those various various intensities and types of Exercise influence mood response, and um, that we're hoping that's the start to that personalized medicine, which I think is where we should be headed. Is you know, for you it might be ten minutes of high intensity, but for me it might be fifteen minutes of moderate intensity. I don't know, and that's something that would be very interesting.
3: This is very much putting me in mind of um, when I was at the gym and they're kind of you know they calibrate. Where you're at with your uh, b m i and how they explained to me that your weight uh, you know in in the past you would just be checking your weight and you would just work out and then your weight would go down but then they were saying how um you know muscle weight um you know, it can be deceptive right your weight could be you get have high muscle but low fat and the fact that this is being refined uh, I'm thinking of like another layer now where if they can find out your optimum um with fatigue and, and energetic stuff that this would actually allow you to include something that could have you walk away from each session feeling better just actually as part of the routine and stuff like that. That's, if I'm understanding
1: that right, that sounds quite exciting. And and it's something that could help everybody. Yeah, so this study's been accepted and you should look for it in Journal of Aquatic Physical Therapy over the next couple of months. Uh, we still don't have proof the proofs of it but uh, we did find that trait level energy and fatigue was associated with the intensity of the mood response of an aquatic physical therapy intervention so how you normally feel impacted how it is that you responded to this acute bout of exercise um there's also we have some cross-sectional data as well on how trait level energy is associated with uh, the impact of sleep on feelings of energy and fatigue and, um, some other data on trait level energy and fatigue and how that impacts the effect of sedentary behavior on feelings of energy and fatigue. Um, so yeah, those, I, to me, those are really important because with what we find with specifically with the biomarkers, right, with what Eshrog has found at, um, UCSF and what I found with the uh, neurotransmitter biomark, with the neurotransmitter uh, epigenome, and then my work with the gut microbiome, perhaps, you know, those neurotransmitters are different in people who are high trait and low trait. And I mean, her study had about 120 people. So to me, it was a well-powered study. Um and you know what she found was that there were various differences in trait level energy and fatigue and the neurotransmitter epigenome and uh that could potentially impact how much an intervention impacts you so yeah i mean i think that's that to me i think is a at least my personal opinion maybe i'm just slanted because this is what i study is that should be a very important aspect of what we should uh collect so that we can create these individualized responses.
2: Hey, Ken, did you have a question? Uh, thank you, Ali, for oh. answering all the questions so far. Um, do you have a few more minutes uh, for? Yes, answering? definitely.
1: Well,
2: cool. thank you. Go ahead. Oh, Ken. yeah,
1: thank you. Um, I was wondering what type of, um, I guess, species of gut bacteria are associated with, um, I guess, um, low or high energy or like maybe foods that might be associated with it. So right now, I mean, our study was very exploratory. We literally uh, looked at an n of twenty twenty. So when you're talking about that sort of, especially with gut microbiota, uh, right, where you've got so many of them, you know, you've got to we've got to have bigger sample sizes. But just in terms of the various gut microbiota and um, first of all, let's get to the food with the food stuff. What we basically found was that, um, really the foods that like processed foods, such as, uh, hot dogs and such were associated with increased feelings of fatigue or increased trait level fatigue. And then when we looked at the species of the bacteria, and once again, I think you should really take this, uh, with a grain of salt, just because, I mean, it's a very, very exploratory study. Um, is what we found was that the firmi- firmicutes were the ones that were associated with mental energy and uh, physical energy. And then the probacteria were associated with fatigue. So it's like lactobacteria that's associated with, I guess, more energy from what you've studied. And I guess like the prebiotics are like fiber. Yes. There's been a lot of uh,
7: lot of studies around increasing acidophilus to uh, stabilize the gut microbiome, but that's unfortunately not always the issue. Um, so I was actually curious what other markers
1: you were looking at in the microbiome. So. Uh... I'm not the gut microbiome expert. I've, uh, Lori Byerly, my colleague at LSU, is the gut microbiome expert, expert, and she is the one who will be really digging down into the gut microbiome. I am more the energy and fatigue expert who thought that, hey, gut microbiota, stable, trait level energy and fatigue, stable. Is there a relationship? And that's how Lori and I started talking about that.
7: Synergy, synergy is uh, is great. It's uh, it was very interesting how you're talking about the synergistic. Um, well, the differences between caffeine and the synthetic versus the the organic um, formulations. And I was thinking that generally, it's probably the the organic formulations were probably more effective due to the synergistic effects rather than the synthetic, and also to reinforce that idea when you were discussing um, how people were viewing the the group exercise versus the individual exercise, the, the synergistic effect applies there as well.
1: Yeah. Um, so with the adaptogens and, you know, with the synthetic, what's really interesting is that caffeine, the, the synthetic caffeine, uh, both groups were pretty much the same. But then when we looked at the um, with the adaptogenic and brewed caffeine, it was really interesting where there was this dichotomy of people who normally felt horrible responded really well to this and to this brewed adaptogenic rich caffeine. But then people who didn't normally feel horrible, they didn't respond well at all, but they responded much better to regular caffeine. So honestly, I couldn't tell you why. This is where, you know, I think the gut microbiota would be very important because I'd be curious to see whether the bacteria that are responsible for metabolism of some of these um, adaptogens might be associated with, you know, there might be a higher quantity in people who normally feel horrible.
0: Thank you, Dr. Um, Oh, sorry, you want us to call you Ali. Thank you. Um, Now I'm seeing that we have a lot of friends on stage and people who have joined since the beginning. So I'll repeat, if you would have a question, please flash your mic so that we can call on you. So now we have Dr. Shah, Cece Rahim, and Mona, and Janelle, and Ken. Do any of you have a question or comment that you would like to offer, Ali?
10: So thank you so much, Ali. Uh, I mean, uh, unfortunately, I could not listen to the whole discussion, but for sure, I will check on a PowerPoint that you just shared here. So I see that uh, the result of your work, that's a wonderful work. And one of my question, I mean, that's about the short I mean, chain fatty acid. And we know that as I just noticed at the beginning, you mentioned about the cancer patient and how the gut microbial can be uh, as a key factor actually, for the cancer patient. Do you have any further information that you can share with us through that?
1: So I'm not the one who's done the cancer work. The cancer work is primarily uh, the lab out of UCSF. Um, Eshrag, I believe, is her name. Her last name is Eshrag. But she's done most of that work on cancer fatigue and not only the, uh, the epigenetic the unique epigenome of the different neurotransmitters, but she's also done some work on gut microbiome as well. But that's their work. That's not mine. I'll have to follow up with
4: that. Uh, as, a, as I'm a, a cancer patient myself, fatigue is always such a pain in the ass and it seems to ebb and flow and it's hard for me to pin down when or under what circumstances it emerges as I try to control or, or, or control for it as much as I can. So...
1: And I, sorry, I was just going to say that's where, you know, it's so important for us to be able to figure out whether these patients are feeling fatigue or they're low energy because that would change the treatment.
2: Mona, you had something to say? Oh, no, I had an unrelated question to that.
9: I just wanted um, you guys to finish your thought on, on what you guys were talking about. I think you're
4: okay. Oh, I have no further oh. questions or, or comments. Sorry, for, for uh, please go ahead. Oh, Laura. no.
9: I just had a question on, um, so like uh, fasting and uh, fatigue and energy, um, was that also studied? Um, or does, because fa- for some people fasting improves, you know, their energy levels, um, but it can cause fatigue. Um, or, or the other way around? Um, has that been looked into?
1: I am unfamiliar with any studies that have looked at that. I am sure just because the sheer number of intermittent fasting studies that are coming out uh, that have used. So you a lot of researchers use either the O'Connor State Trait Scale or the Profile of Mood Surveys or POMS. And I know that there have been several intermittent fasting studies that have that have recently been published that have used the palms but it's not something that i have personally looked at um i do have a very large data set the one that we collected for the ontological uh exercise types that we are still parsing through and um, we could, I mean, that's something that we'll, we'll try to take a look and see whether the quantity, and this is self-reported, unfortunately, whether the quantity and quality of the foods that were consumed over the course of the day before the ontological intervention, um, whether that impacted their feelings of energy and fatigue pre-exercise.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ali. I would like to interject here that this room is not endorsing fasting or intermittent fasting, that the topic is uh, gut bacteria associated with fatigue and energy in the interest of promoting um, accepted science. Because when people are suffering from eating disorders, they can also be um, expecting that they are or can thinking that they are experiencing energy however, since an eating disorder is a genetically linked mental illness, that it's actually erroneous fatigue that, um, energy levels that they are experiencing. So really important. Um, thank you for coming up and being in the room and asking your question. However, I, I, it's important that in the spirit of promoting factual information and best health practices that we stick to the topic. Thank you so much.
2: yeah i i wanted to add that there might be a lot of data um i I mean i know that there is a lot of data from clinics in russia and north europe where um, they used to be uh, fasting just being on water for uh, even two weeks in mental health facilities was um was done quite frequently and there is a lot of data about it at some point started looking into it so um yeah if if anyone is interested in looking at those data sets um what it then actually does to the body and um, the mental health um yeah please look into those um i i don't know how good but it's it's a they are very large data sets, but um, how they are, you know, done by what standards is probably a lot of, like, it's, it's messy, but there's a lot of data around fasting from, from those clinics.
4: I think it'll make for great future episodes of Science Society to invite some of those scientists of the upcoming uh, intermittent fasting studies to see what their most recent data or whatnot says. So definitely something to keep an eye out for.
9: Yeah, my apologies. I was just asking a general question. Um, Yeah, I wasn't going, I was actually going to ask another question about HLA subtypes um, with the gut microbes. Oh, yeah, no problem. It's just there
0: is so much disinformation about fasting and eating disorders are deadly. They do kill one in 10 sufferers. So it's, extremely important that when we're in a public forum that we're very cautious about using supported data to discuss things such as fasting because eating disorders take lives and it's important that that we stand up against that so yeah no reason to apologize um just please leave informed thank you
4: although I think uh Katarina did post something to tech news around the world a few days ago about uh, a study that talked about one of the Best times to eat during the day was when you are most active. So, that was an interesting uh, study that we could perhaps talk in some future
1: dates. So, I will say this we did, we have one study that we published in Nutrition and Health where we found that people who skipped breakfast, we had people come into our lab between 10 a.m. and noon, and people who skipped breakfast reported feeling significantly more fatigued. Uh, But that was just from, you know, having them come in repeatedly into our labs uh, for another study. And we had them self-report what they ate for dinner the night before and breakfast. And the people who reported feeling, uh, reported not consuming uh, breakfast that morning were the ones who reported feeling more fatigue or also the intra-individual differences when days that our participants skipped breakfast they felt they reported feeling more fatigued when they started our intervention
4: and as a side uh, joke uh, maybe they were fatigued of the study as well which sometimes happens as well having participated in a few clinical studies myself it's often hard to uh, be energetic uh, every time you come in so missing your breakfast probably sounds like a shitty morning and then you have to come in and do stuff so If you miss your breakfast, perhaps that's not the best start to a day. So missing the breakfast definitely not a great option.
1: Yeah.
10: But honestly, in a clinical level, I mean, we should rule out other conditions as well. I mean, it it doesn't go in a way of, I mean, always saying that it can be related or not related because I don't know exactly what was the question about the HLA. But in general, reducing the inflammation can be the goal. In a body, so it can, I mean, can be by the food, or it can be by other approaches. It's dependent on the situation.
1: Yes, and I think um, you know what we've seen with inflammatory biomarkers for sure. Uh, whenever there's an increase in TNF alpha, we do see increased feelings of fatigue. Um, we have thought about, um, and we did apply to two different grants. They didn't end up getting funded, uh, but we did look at look to see whether some of the foods that have been shown to have energy enhancing benefits, uh, cocoa, um, adaptogenic rich beverages, whether those also had anti inflammatory, uh, you know, effects. But unfortunately, the um, companies that we did apply because this was private co- uh, companies that we applied for grants with, they have they they currently for this year do not have the budget they did before the pandemic hit, they were interested, and then the pandemic hit and everything stopped for us in terms of human subjects work in person. And so they told us to shelve everything, and then we reached out to them this year and they were like, Uh, don't have the budget for it this year. Yeah, something like 70
4: percent of biotech funding uh, evaporated in the last week or two, so perhaps it'll uh. Results in some uh, reshuffling in the future, but
1: I am. Yeah, they told us to reach out to them in 2023.
2: Sorry about that. Uh, I have a question. Did you take people like you categorize if people were prone to having allergies or they had a lot of allergies versus not, or do allergies in general play a big factor in? you know, and inflammation and then also fatigue uh, would be really interesting uh, to look at, I think.
1: I, I agree. We actually eliminated people with allergies in our study uh, just because, you know, that that was not the goal of that study. Uh, but the work that I'm currently looking at with the Corey Stringer in- Institute, they didn't eliminate anybody and they did look at allergy so that is something that we have talked about uh, potentially looking at, but it's further down the line. To, but then again, this is, um, you know, that that's a very large data set that we're going to slowly parse our way through.
2: Yeah, it would be interesting to see if exercise and uh, um, eating habits would Um, maybe also change the allergy uh, and inflammation states and allergy um, states like if it would help if there is like a specific exercise regimen that would maybe help cope with like allergy seasons or things like that because back in time people like when when I first had allergies and asthma as a kid people would like the doctor would tell my mother that i should do a lot of exercise and swimming and stuff so um i don't know if that's still (laughs) like i don't know if it was database but uh or if anyone confirmed that but it would be interesting
1: yeah, I'm not familiar with any of those studies. The data that we have with the Corey Sterner Institute was just a baseline allergy panel that they did, and then we they collected blood biomarker work monthly over the course of four years on 270 athletes. So there's no repeated measures on the on any of the uh, Ig, so none of the uh, allergy biomarkers are repeatedly collected. They're just collected at baseline.
2: Uh, Ferris uh, joined the stage. Do you have time for one more question? I know we're going for an hour and a half.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm good.
2: <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Ferris, welcome to the stage. Go ahead. Yeah.
8: Oh, thank you, Katerina. And thank you, Ali, for uh, explaining to us this work. I actually just uh, a few minutes ago came into the room, but I was going through the slides uh, that you have up and uh, I just finished going through them. And I did notice uh, from a sort of a doctor, you know, as as a clinician, um, the tiredness and fatigue and energy measurements and expressions or, you know, perception of levels of energy are are so. I wouldn't even say secondary, they're like tertiary or even, even higher up in terms of how, in, in terms of being a construct, in terms of that there, there are so many levels below them that influence them. There's so many confounders that is so hard to pinpoint and um, let alone quantify. And, and, and even after that, let alone try to try to describe the mechanism behind it. Um, and I know a lot of the grants are focusing on mechanistic aspects of research and I can totally understand how difficult it must be to try to study, you know, tiredness and fatigue and, and the you know, energy levels, whether they were measured externally by some sort of a, a semi, you know, however well validated a tool is or that they're just self-reported. Um, but I was wondering if The hormone levels, the several hormone levels that do influence activity levels, metabolism, um, sort of cognitive activity, uh, clarity, um, the energy levels, the the muscular uh, tone, as well as the the muscular metabolism, as well as its reactivity in terms of time. I did notice that on one of your slides. Um, Whether we're talking about adrenaline, thyroid hormone, Um, The growth hormone itself, cortisol, there's just so many, including insulin, glucagon, somatostatin, there's just so many hormones that play an important role as a group. And So if you're studying the hormones itself, it's kind of a world of itself. Then how about if you're studying all the factors that are influencing this? And, And I just find it really difficult to wrap my head around how you might be able to try to sort of pinpoint. A, uh, not just one or two or three or ten, but like a group of causal factors that might influence this, as well as try to figure out a way to increase it or decrease it, or, have people that, or help people that are, you know, reporting or suffering from low levels or too high of levels. Which I wouldn't expect people would suffer from that unless they're, you know, um, suffering from other stuff that they would usually push them to go to the doctor. Anyway, anyway, I I, I don't want to you know ramble too 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 long about this, but I was just sort of fascinated first by this work of yours which is amazing and I hope I wish you the best of it especially that you're trying to go about doing it from multiple angles Um, but considering the complexity of what goes into influencing energy levels and then starting from energy levels to go to those factors I think might be really really difficult but potentially maybe trying to focus on some of the aspects that are... Uh, from your work are are showing up as well-established in terms of causal factors, any causal links that you're seeing that might be more potentially, you know, um, it sort of changeable, that you can modify, modifiable, that potentially can, you know, influence these energy levels and this, you know, feeling of tiredness the most. Maybe that might be a good way. I'm not, of course, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. Um, But yeah, considering the complexity of this, um, I'm just fascinated by what can be done. What, what, What do you think of the complexity and how do you try to tackle it?
1: It's something that I think I'll spend my lifetime doing. It's a very, very, as you said, I mean, it's extremely complex, right? So if you just... Take dopamine. Uh, when you start looking at the hormone hormonal levels, right? It's got to. You've got to also think about epinephrine, norepinephrine. Um, so with us, you know, when we're looking at the at least the hormones that we've been able to isolate, they've simply been based on. Well, you know, we gave them. Uh, we ended up giving them, uh, you know, we did a hist- We used a histamine blocker. And when we did, we found that there was a decrease in feelings of fatigue. Um, but, you know, as we're examining, we've got a really large data set with the Corey Stringer Institute where they actually measured 180 different biomarkers and 270 people over the course of 12 months for four years. So that is something that we are really hoping to spend time exploring and going through and figuring out what those complex interactions are and how it is that those might impact uh, feelings of energy and fatigue. But when you talk about interventions to in, to in, improve them, right? So one of the things that we have found is that um, ABO two, so SPO two, skeletal uh, mitochondrial function. Uh, when we see an increase in uh, SPO two, we end up seeing and uh, basically an increase in feelings of energy. So one of our thoughts is potentially improving mitochondrial function and increasing the density and the number of mitochondria. So something that we got um we we applied for a pilot grant um we got funding for it but unfortunately the pandemic hit so it got accepted uh pandemic hit and then that project never really got off the ground uh but we're hoping to get it up and going is we wanted to see whether exercises that used both lower and upper extremities. So we were specifically interested in uh, using you know the bikes that have both the arms and the legs versus the bikes that just have you pedal. And we wanted to see whether really increasing mitochondrial density in both upper density and number and whether increasing in both upper and lower extremities versus just lower extremities, if that would change how someone feels better over time or trait level feelings of energy and fatigue. Uh, We were, you know, we got funded for a 12 week grant uh, by the American Physical Therapy Association. Uh, But unfortunately, as I said, the pandemic hit and the co-PI on that grant, um, he's had some things where he has been unable to actually follow through and we've, we've not been able to restart that study or shouldn't restart, but start that study because it got accepted literally at the end of February and things shut down in March.
4: Yeah, some in-person studies are still restricted at uh, the university, so it's, uh, it's quite difficult to uh, do clinical work, especially within the field of uh, psychology or any participants for that matter. So post-pandemic,
1: different world indeed. Yes. uh, I mean, one of our studies that uh, the one that we're using EMG to identify both uh, increases and decreases in feelings of energy and fatigue uh, using EMG work and the muscle interaction, all of our participants had to complete the data collection with the mask. And I really wonder whether it changed their self-reporting and whether it impacted even their perception, ratings, of perceived exertion, and such, uh, on the exercise protocols. So I'm I'm very very interested to see if that's what happened.
9: Yeah. Awesome. Any
4: questions, oh, uh, Ken or uh, Joe? All righty. Okay.
2: Thank you so much for uh, taking such a long time and patience to answer to all of our questions. And uh, it was a really great talk and it's really interesting and very important work. So I hope work after COVID now becomes easier, less hurdles and we wish you a lot of funding because it's really important what you're doing, and um, we are really looking forward to um, uh, follow your work. And uh, whenever you have app updates, uh, please come back and share them with us anytime. And um, yeah, we wish you all the best, a lot of funding, and the least bureaucratic hurdles. <laughs> there could
3: yeah. Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. It was great to have all these questions and uh, the number of incredibly smart people on this call who gave me ideas of things that I hadn't even thought of. So I really appreciate that.
4: Yeah, it's the reason why all of us keep coming back here. Not only is it very addictive, so it's quite a challenge for impulse control, but because of the benefit every time You have a chance of bumping into somebody who just happens to say that one thing that was missing on your, you know, in your master plan or whatever it is, your strategy that you're going for. And uh, even just hearing your talk today, I thought, oh, well, there's this person that I know who's doing this work I should connect you to. And, oh, well, there's actually this other person that I know. And, well, you know, it might as well be a router if I know these people. So uh, it's, it's a very vibrant community. People do try to be uh, promoting of these network effects that you often hear people like Peter Thiel talk about. So uh, thank, thanks once again from me
1: as well uh, for, for coming by and sharing your time with us well thank you for having me and i'll look forward to uh, i'll actually look forward to dropping into this room i'm not a big social media person but um i think i'll have to put this clubhouse app and the uh science society uh clubhouse meeting on my uh phone and keep it on there and drop by
2: well you're already the perfect guest because this was the perfect lead to announcing the next room <laughs> so you're already the perfect moderator <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, thank you everyone for asking these great questions. And if you like rooms like this, um, please come back. We'll have tomorrow at 1 p.m. EST um, Dr. Gebelain. He will be joining us from Europe and he achieved something quite remarkable um, mitochondria transplantation between living cells. It's really one of the key uh, points to, for the next step in rejuvenation. So um, we are really looking forward to having him. Then we'll have Dr. Uyin uh, building complexity in biological design spaces. He is at the CUNY uh, here in New York um, and um, nano engineering department. And he will talk about his uh, interesting work. On Friday at 1 p.m., EST will have uh, a room about dogs. (laughs) Whoever loves dogs should come. Um, It's a study about how dogs recognize dog and human emotion. It's not very um, common that. species recognize emotions of other species. So it's quite remarkable how well dogs do this. And this is a study about that. And then on Saturday, we'll have Dr. Cheryl Cheng. She will talk about using molecular orbital-based machine learning. Um, yeah, and um, we'll have a lot of great guest speakers. And please come back if you uh, like these discussions. And again, a very special thanks to you, Ali. It was a wonderful talk, and uh, we had a great time. Thank you again.
1: Thanks for having me. Right. Thank you very much, Ali. Thanks. Welcome. Welcome. Bye. Have a great night.
2: Three, mm-hmm. two, one.
3: Good night, Bye. everyone. Bye.